This is Ernie Johnson, founder of Anashira. Hey, I got a question for you. Have you ever heard of someone called Buffalo Bird Woman? Well, she was a Hidatsa Indian woman born in 1839. She lived in Earth Lodge along the Knife River, and that's in present-day North Dakota. Well, I was doing some research on heirloom vegetables and things I could grow, and I read of her, and I knew that she lived in one of the harshest environments in the United States, brutal winters up there. And she and other women of her uh, tribe practiced techniques that they'd used for centuries, and they grew corn and beans and squash and sunflowers, all in the bottomlands of the Missouri River. These were uh, fertile lands. They planted, they harvested, they processed. They stored these vegetables and used them all year long. They used an agricultural method that was free from fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides. I was fascinated. So I found a book It was first published in 1917, and it told her story, and it was called Agriculture of the Hidatsa Indians, an Indian Interpretation. Uh, Kind of a dry title, huh? But she would not only grow and eat these products fresh, but would dry them in the sun so they could live all winter long, making them into stews and soups. She would trade seed for other items from other Indian tribes, such as uh, they'd get buffalo skins, and they weren't buffalo hunters themselves. So I wanted to follow some of these practices that she did. So I did some research, and I found an heirloom zucchini from Italy. It's called Costata Romanesca. You can eat it small. You can eat it when they get big. These... uh, Zucchinis get up to two feet long and you can still eat them and you can dry it. You can eat the flowers. You can save the seed. You can replant them. Hey, just what I was looking for. So I found some seed and I planted it for the first time last summer. And hey, they were right. It was delicious. We ate these zucchinis for about a month and a half until the plants stopped producing. They die off. And I dried a lot of it for use in the winter. I figured I'd make stews and soups. I didn't dry it on poles like the Indians. I used a dehydrator and I stored it in my closet in plastic bags and I dried the seeds at the end of the year. This year, I didn't want to run out of fresh zucchinis. So I planted eight hills, three seeds to a hill. Four weeks after that, I planted another eight hills three seeds to a hill. So once the first group dies off, I'll have more zucchini seed. I'm not running out. Now, you know the size of the zucchinis you buy in a store. They may be, what, six inches long? And you take about two or three or four of them will make a a good portion for somebody. Well, why eat it that small when you can let it grow to a foot, a foot and a half long? Just as delicious. So I let it get a little bigger. And before I know it, I have two or three or four or five big zucchinis. Man, I am parboiling zucchini. 
I'm making it in stir fries. I'm adding it to pasta sauces. I'm frying it like my mom did. You know, you slice it, you dip it in flour, put it in an egg wash, put it in breadcrumbs, you fry it in olive oil, serve it with some fresh lime juice. It's delicious. I have recipes from the 60s. I make big zucchini casseroles. I make one with cream of chicken soup, some sour cream, Pepperidge Farm stuffing. You mix it with butter and put it on the top, just like they did in the 60s. I make baked zucchini. I stuff it. I have recipes for chocolate zucchini cake, zucchini bread. Dawn puts it in every tossed salad we eat. We have recipes for zucchini pecan cake, zucchini pineapple cake. Hey, I'm trying, right? I cut it up in slices. I take it every day to Mama and Razzie. I feed it to them as a treat. They've had so much, they start looking at me cross-eyed when I bring out the zucchini. Well, my dad taught me, don't let anything go to waste, Ernie. So I give it away. Cody comes for a marketing meeting. He leaves with a big zucchini in his hands. I go to a 4th of July party at our friend's house. I take two big zucchinis to Kathy and Nancy. You know, I could dry more, but I've still got bags of dried slices of zucchini from last year that we didn't eat. I can't help it. I go out and look at those small zucchinis and I think, man, I'll just let them get a little bit bigger. Now I know why my dad never had zucchini in his gardens. He'd be just like me. Well, we got to move on. I have to finish telling you of growing up on the City Edge Guernsey Farm. I want to thank Anashira for sponsoring this podcast. Try our goat milk soap. Try Fields of Provence. It contains wonderful ingredients like avocado oil, mango butter, and of course, olive oil. I use the same olive oil that we cook with. We use this olive oil in our salad dressings. That's how good it is. Don't forget to use promo code STORIES15. Gets you 15% discount off of anything you buy. Okay, let's get back to the City Edge Guernsey Farm. I told you before that we lived in an old wooden farmhouse. You'd walk up tall wooden steps to get to the back porch. The front porch also had the same kind of steps, but no one ever entered the house from the main entrance from the front porch. In the winter, we had a big gas stove in the living room for heat. We needed it in the winter, but there were drafts going through this house. Felt like a hurricane. I remember my mom. If someone was sick, she'd take a washcloth, put some Vicks Vapor Rub on it, and put it on the stove to get hot. Then she'd bring it over to you and tuck it into your chest, right? The part of your neck into your chest, and that was the magical cure. It cured many, many things. Now, in the summers, which would frequently be well over 100 degrees, man, 103, 104, 107 was not out of... Out of the ordinary, we had a swamp cooler. Now, this was effective, somewhat effective, in dry climates. It's a big box. It has a thing, has things called excelsior pads. Water circulates over these pads. It has a big centrifugal fan that circulates air through these pads into the house. 
So this damp air would be blown into the house and evaporate, and uh, it would sort of cool you off. And you'd come in on a hot day, and the best place was right in front of that cooler. Man, there'd be several of us standing there with that damp air blowing around us. I had my own bedroom. The girls shared rooms. Now, that sounds pretty good, but it was a small room, and half of it was my dad's roll-top desk, his chair. It was his office. So he'd come in every night after dinner, after sometimes an hour of TV, and the kids, we were all in bed, and he'd sit there and he'd do his bookwork. We had no accountant. He kept records of everything, and he had one of those hand-crank adding machines. Remember those? I'd hear him enter the numbers, tap, 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 and crank, tap, 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 crank. And it was a Remington Rand machine. He used that machine for years, and then later he got an electric version of basically the same machine. And if that wasn't enough to keep me from falling asleep, he'd have the radio set to the country country music station. Johnny Cash, Tennessee Ernie Ford, Hank Williams, I heard all of them. He thought I was asleep. I just lay there, facing away, listening to him, listening to the music, five nights a week. Man, I wish I could have a couple of those nights again. I have to tell you about our cellar. There was a rickety staircase that led down to it. It was dark down there. There were cobwebs on the walls and ceilings. We were sure there were poisonous spiders everywhere. It was very scary in the dark. It had two big freezers. One held beef, butchered and packaged from one of our cows. The other held five-gallon containers of ice cream, several different flavors. You know, my folks and many people in that generation loved ice cream. It meant something special to them. There were a number of shelves down there, too. They held jams and preserves that our mom made, chili sauces, They also held something else, something more dangerous, although we wouldn't suspect it. Before I tell you about that, I want to explain about one of the big industries of California. In the 1880s and 90s, the state became a major producer of fruits and vegetables. Think of the production of tomatoes, peaches, apricots, grapes in the San Joaquin Valley, to name only a few, and only a small portion of that production would be consumed fresh. In the 1890s, the California Fruit Canners Association was formed when 18 West Coast canneries merged. It introduced the Del Monte brand in 1909, and by 1919, it operated six plants in Fresno, processing peaches, apricots, uh, dried fruits, seeded raisins. You may ask, Why is this of interest here? Well, there was a canning plant in Fresno set up for the general public. My family went there every summer. You'd buy bulk containers of fresh fruits, and then you'd go into this cannery and you'd clean the fruit, you'd remove the pits, you'd place it in an open 16-ounce can, you'd add water, sugar, whatever, Uh, you'd get all your cans together, you'd send them into the factory on a moving belt, And they'd seal the cans, heat them, cook them, and return them to you. A lot of people did that in those days. Saved a lot of money. So my family did this in the summers. We'd buy lugs, that is like crates, of fruit. 
my folks, my sister Beverly, uh, my two younger sisters were too young to handle sharp knives. Uncle Les and I would be assigned places and would remove pits from the fruit and fill in the cans. We felt like a regular Del Monte canning operation. Now, they warned you not to do one thing. Don't overfill the cans. Don't fill them all the way. Leave three quarters of an inch of headspace at the top. Now, you've heard of my dad. He was a frugal man, and he was paying to have each can processed. Hey, he'd say, we don't need to leave all that airspace. Cram as much fruit as you can. We'll get our money's worth. On this day, we were canning Bing cherries, one of our favorites to eat, not to pit. Your fingers and hands got stained purple. So we finished, finished pitting the fruit, filling the cans, got them all ready, sent them off into the factory. They were processed. We picked up our cases, literally cases of cans, and we'd load up the trunk of our 1949 Chevy sedan, four-door, and head home. Carry these cans down in the basement, put them up on the shelves. It was probably a couple of months later, in August, and we're all sitting around at the dinner table one night. It was an exceptionally hot day, and bam, an explosion. Man, we're stunned. Nobody knows what it was. We look around. A few minutes later, bam, bam. We look at each other, and we look over at the basement door. Pa gets up, walks over, opens the door, turns on the light. Oh, my, he says. It was some of those cans of cherries. There was too little headspace. The heat had caused the contents to expand so much that several of the cans exploded like small bombs. And imagine the mess. Bombs of cherries, syrup, blown all over everything in the cellar. We worked for days cleaning that up. Well, you know, I was talking with my sister, Beverly. She's uh, three years older than I am, and she remembers a lot about the ranch. She said one of her favorite memories was carrying the garbage out to the garbage pit past the hen houses. What? Are you serious? Yeah. Every month or so, Antone, she says, our mighty Latvian would cover the old pit and dig a new one by hand with a shovel. Well, she enjoyed taking the garbage out. I asked her about her worst memory. She said, without any reflection on her part, not a pause, puncture vines. You know, she's right. There's a flat, mat-forming, noxious plant in Central California. Well, really over lots of California, it's called the puncture vine. Now, one vine produces many burrs, and these burrs have sharp spines. There's toxic chemical in these spines. You get the, And the tip could be easily... You get that in your foot, it'll break off, man, you're in trouble. You'll be digging that thing out with a needle. It's really prevalent in areas with hot summers. And these spines injure humans and livestock. We could never, ever run around barefoot on the farm. I told you last week that Les slept in a bed on the front porch, and he had a deal with Bev. She'd make his bed, he'd pay her a dime. How often did you do this, Bev? Well, only when I felt like it. 
And that sounds like Beverly. He didn't care. He didn't care if it was made or not. And you know, our mom never went out there. She didn't want anything to do with that porch. No one went out there except for Bev and Les and me. Well, Paul had a controlled program to breed our cows. And Bev reminded me of feeding the calves. They were separated from their mothers soon after birth. They got better care and were healthier and separate in a separate environment from the field. They were uh, kept in pens and first fed from a bottle. Then uh, they were fed milk from a pail. And we had to teach these calves how to drink from a pail. We'd put a couple of fingers out and the calf would instinctively suck on those fingers. They had no teeth. It was a strange sensation. We lowered our hands slowly to a bucket of fresh milk and the calf would follow us down there, still be sucking and then begin to drink the milk. And that's how they'd learn. And it'd be a couple months and they'd be weaned. Bev loved feeding these young animals. And my dad would keep detailed records on every cow he had. And everyone had a name. Naturally, one cow was named Beverly. Oh, Bev watched that cow. She felt some attachment to it. And it's funny, we tried to train Beverly the cow. We would stand next to it and we go, sit, Beverly, sit, nothing. Come, Beverly, come, nothing, no success. We felt like failures, failures as animal trainers for a long time. Sometime later, I'm sitting watching some trained dog act on the Ed Sullivan show and it hit me. I turned to Bev, who was right near me. Hey, Bev, you ever see any trained cow acts on TV? Nope. You ever see any cow acts in a circus? Nope. Bev, it wasn't us. We weren't failures in cow obedience. It was the cow. It wasn't us. For some reason, I felt a sense of relief with that realization. Hey, World War II ended in 1945. The war ended, and there were tons and tons of equipment left over. It wasn't needed, and army surplus stores sprang up everywhere. And my dad, who was never known for throwing away his money, was one of the best customers. One of the things he bought first was a field intercom phone system. Remember, each phone was connected by a hard wire to every other phone, And each of them had a crank, so you cranked it, and uh, all the connected phones rang. So you cranked it. So Pop had one in the shop. He had one in the milk barn and one in the house. And each location had a certain ring to it. So if he rang one ring, that means someone was calling home. If you were there, you'd pick it up. Two rings, milk barn, and so on. He bought field cots. Chances are, if you came to visit us on a holiday, you either slept on the floor or slept on a cot. He bought backpacks. These weren't the light, comfortable backpacks of today. These were heavy torture devices. He bought sleeping bags. We used them for years. We called them mummy bags. You were wrapped as tight as a mummy and hot. Uh Uh-oh. Look at that. We're about out of time for this week. Folks, If you're near Asheville, on either or both of the next two weekends, stop by Aston Park 
and watch some of the 87th annual City of Asheville Open Tennis Championships. It's an event of the United States Tennis Association. Players from all around this part of the country are going to be here, and Anashira is a sponsor. We're giving away my handmade Playa del Mar soap in the gift bags. Aston Park has clay tennis courts, beautiful courts, but they're dusty, and these players will go home, and when they're done, they'll be dirty, and they can have a beautiful shower with my Playa del Mar soap. Now, I'll be volunteering on both Saturdays, myself, at the beer tent. Hey, can you believe it? I had to take a course and pass a test given by the North Carolina Alcoholic Beverage Control Commission. I have to present my certificate of completion in order to be able to serve beers to tennis players. Well, come out. Come out, see some great tennis. Come over to the beer tent and see me and I'll buy you a beer. Yeah, and oh, and my wife Dawn is playing. Watch her. She's a great player. My thanks to Anashira for supporting this podcast. Oh, I didn't mean to uh, leave you hanging with those army surplus backpacks and mummy bags. They're important pieces of one of my upcoming stories from Anashira. Anashira.